So I don't know. I've always sort of lived in language. We've all felt a part of that story. How I look at it is that poetry is not the transcription of experience, it's the transformation of it. You're listening to Retellings, the Washington University creative writing podcast series. Welcome, listeners, to Retellings, a part of Hold That Thought at Washington University. I'm Rebecca King, and today I meet with Danielle Dutton, a fiction writer and publisher, to discuss the poetics of suburbia and the roadblocks and triumphs of women in publishing. In the second half of the episode, Vincent Sherry, a professor of English at Washington University, talks about Virginia Woolf and some of her fierce literary opinions. Currently an assistant professor of English at Washington University, Danielle Dutton is the author of two books, including Attempt at a Life and Sprawl, which was shortlisted for the Believer Book Award. She founded and edits the small press Dorothy, a publishing project. You can hear her read from Sprawl in a second podcast. Now, to start with the novel's inspiration. Where did you get the idea for Sprawl? It's really specific, actually. I don't think you can always know for sure, but I know exactly where. I was getting my PhD at the University of Denver, and I was in a class with the poet Ben Ramke, and it was a class on modernist American poets, and he was talking about the poetics of the city, and we were reading Frank O'Hara, just talking about the rhythms of the city in the poetry versus a sort of earlier pastoral rhythm. And I was just sitting there thinking the way you sort of think off on your own in class. Since I'm not from the city or the country, really, I just started wondering what would the poetics of suburban sprawl sound like? What would that be like? And that was the original germ of the idea. And I think that's why, too, it made a lot of sense for me to think about the language what it would feel like or sound like to be inside of the poetics of suburbia. And I guess I thought that would be in certain ways monotonous and claustrophobic, but actually filled with surprises if you sort of paid attention to it. That was my idea about it, and that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, I think that definitely comes across. Did your process then differ a lot from Attempts at Life, your first novel? Well, that one's a collection. So I think, I mean, in both cases, I felt like I was just sort of feeling my way in the dark. I tend to think a lot about shapes, narrative shapes when I'm writing more than, say, like a specific plot. And then once I have a character, I'll think a little bit more about the character. But it starts with the language and it starts with the feeling, the sense, almost like a sculptural sense of a shape I know I want to be writing into. In that sense, they were very similar. The thing about writing a novel, of course, is that you have to go back into that same space day after day. Because the pieces and attempts at a life are so short, I felt pretty comfortable just having this strange mercurial relationship with them. I didn't feel like I had to know everything about them. And then in a certain way, I feel like Sprawl is an intermediary place. This makes sense between my first book and my third book, because now with the third book, it's taken much longer to write. It's a much longer book. I feel like I'm coming to know it in every possible way. And Sprawl sort of sat between those two experiences. So it was it was different, but not as different as the third book is from the first two. Well, you were talking about shapes, mm-hmm. narrative shapes. Do you mean like an arc then? No, I, I literally mean I have like 3D sense of a shape that I want the book to feel like when it's done. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, in this case, of course, there's the one long paragraph, so there's a sort of sliding through that I wanted. Another writer might put it in terms of a narrative arc or a sort of plot shape. I think those two things are totally related. When I teach plot, I always talk about shape. But for myself, it's sort of this, it almost feels like before language. I mean, I know that's impossible, but it doesn't feel like, and this will be the narrative arc and I can plot it out on a graph. It just feels shapely in a particular way. So what shape is sprawl? Now it's hard for me to totally access whatever shape it was I had in mind, but I think I wanted it to feel in certain ways, which might sound absurd to someone who's read it, but very multifaceted, sort of to sparkle in all these unexpected ways, but to also be amoeba-shaped. I didn't want it to have a sort of normal arc or the shape of a triangle or something, and, and it certainly doesn't have that shape. Well, and then I guess if we can talk about the lists, I found the list really fascinating, sort of ordered chaos, mm -hmm. and it really filled the world with objects. It made me feel like what a cluttered life or kind of existence there is in suburbia. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite writers is the French writer Georges Perec, and he writes very thing-filled books, and I just find them very pleasing. He even has one that's translated as things. And so I think that that was one influence the way you can sort of come to know someone by the things that they surround themselves with. And then I hope it's not at all didactic. And I wasn't necessarily trying to say something with the book, but I am troubled by my own consumerism and the consumerism I grew up around. And I find all of that very deeply troubling. Shortly after starting the book, I discovered these contemporary still life photographs by this artist. I think she teaches at the University of Chicago. Her name is Laura Latinsky. And I fell madly in love with them. And they are these really wonderful, odd photographs of domestic scenes. There are no people in them, they're still lifes, but they're very contemporary and the things in them are sort of on the verge of being rotten and there's crumbs everywhere and dead flowers or something has spilled over or there are things sort of on the very edge of the table about to crash over. And in one sense, everything in them is totally banal, but on the other hand, there's this like strange vibration or energy around them that I was really taken with. And I thought that it captured something of the domesticity I wanted to capture in the book. How could I get the energy of her images into my book, I wondered. And I thought, all I can do is simply list everything in a photo. So a lot of those lists are me literally listing what was in one of her images. And so I thought it was a way of translating them into language in my own way. I don't know if it works or not, but to me, I sort of see them throughout the book in that sense. So the book is sort of illustrated, but in my brain. Speaking of influences, who are your biggest influences? Weird things influence me. I think TV lately has been influencing my fiction writing in good ways. Since I've never been someone who's written like with a sort of driving linear plot in mind, I've been finding it really interesting to, and to bring up Mad Men, to think about seriality and what you can do inside of sort of serial spaces. Also, I have a four-year-old son, and I think he's been a really big influence on my writing. He wants me to tell him stories all the time, and if I spend too long detailing the world, which is my habit, or giving sort of backstory or habitual action, he'll just cut me off and say, okay, but what happened one day? So one day, and he wants me to like get going with the plot, and so I think that's been a big influence on me recently too. But in terms of writers, I mean, I love Virginia Woolf, pretty much everything across the board. I mentioned George Perec, he's also a big influence, I think, on my work. Gertrude Stein was really important to me, I think, a sort of permission giving that you can do pretty much anything if you make it interesting. I guess 
in a certain way, that would be my trio. That are the people who come most immediately to mind. That's a great list. So, <laughs> I'm also interested in talking to other publishers about the Vita count. Oh, uh-huh. Dorothy publishes a lot of women. For those of you who are listening who don't know about the Vita count, it's the women in literary arts. In 2010, they started counting the number of men versus women who were published in various leading magazines, including Harper's, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker. And the ratio of men versus women who were published was three or four men for every one woman. So, Danielle, as a woman publisher, what do these Vita numbers mean to you? Oh, well, they're depressing and demoralizing. In 2010 was the year that Dorothy started also, and like it says on the website, Dorothy is dedicated to publishing what I say, mostly women, which, I mean, I wouldn't turn down a book by a man that I really loved, but I wanted to try to create a sort of space where women felt encouraged to submit because for whatever reason, I think, you know, this has been talked about along with the Vita count, as an editor saying, well, fewer women submit their work is not a good enough reason for having so many fewer women in your magazine. The editorial role is more active than that, or it should be. I wanted to try to create that space because when I did work at Dalkey, I did happen to notice that the vast majority of the work that came in, at least through the transom, was by men. And I know that as a woman myself, I'm more reticent about sending out my work than some of my male friends. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, I don't want to essentialize the whole argument, but I mean, there they are. There are those numbers to look at. So, so far we've published five books by women and one by this French writer Manuela Drager, which is a pseudonym for a French writer Antoine Volodine, which is a pseudonym for some unknown person who I think is a man. And on the very first page of that book, actually the first line is something like, the man who invented fire was a woman, actually. So something about that book really (laughs) struck me as funny. I liked the kind of weird gender play of the pseudonym and of the book itself. So that's our sort of That's our mostly so far. Other than that, it's just women. Two more women coming out in the fall and one more woman signed up so far for the year after that. I think the other half of this is that I don't like that term women's fiction. To me, it sounds like there's one sort of thing that women do and we can call it women's fiction and we can sort of set it off to the side that way. And I just wanted to, again, celebrate the sort of diversity of what women do in fiction. There is not one thing. None of the books that we're publishing are like each other stylistically, aesthetically in terms of what they're doing, what they're about. They are not chiclet. They're just great literature. They're great writing. And so I really balk at the idea that, you know, women do small books, women do this one sort of thing. The varied success of female writers in publishing is a complex and long-standing issue tied up in ideas of education and equal rights. One of Danielle's biggest influences, Virginia Woolf, wrote much on the subject in her book, A Room of One's Own. Vincent Sherry, the Howard Nemiroff Professor in the Humanities and Professor of English at Washington University, told me more about Woolf and the legacy of her life and work for writers of both sexes. So, Vince, I know this is a big question, but to start generally, who is Virginia Woolf? That sounds like a trick question. Well, first of all, she was Virginia Woolf second. She was first Virginia Stephen, and she is descended from a very important, very distinguished family, a kind of cultural patrician class. Her father, Leslie Stephen, was a major intellectual in the late 19th century. It was in his second marriage that Virginia was born, so he was sort of a Victorian grandfather to her. But he represented that 19th century tradition to her, and she was much influenced by it. 
Her sister was a very accomplished painter. She belonged to a very secure cultural class of public intellectuals. She met Leonard later, around 1910 or so, and Leonard Wolf, that is. They were married in 1912, and they began their married life in the midst of what we know as the Bloomsbury Circle or the Bloomsbury Group, which was named after a district in London. And it was generally a coterie of intellectuals, economists, philosophers, writers, visual artists. We assign them customarily to the modernist generation, and they had connections with people like T.S. Eliot and, more distantly, James Joyce and Ezra Pound. So that's where she belongs in the cultural landscape. What are some of the most important of her works? I think most people would agree that the work for which she is most well-known is the fiction of the 1920s. There's a series of novels in there. Jacob's Room, which is 1922, Mrs. Dalloway, which is 1925, and To the Lighthouse, which is 1927-1928. Those are the three books that are almost inarguably the kind of weight-bearing element in her reputation. The Waves, which is 1930, is sometimes regarded as on a par with the great novels of the 20s. There's also some very important essays that she wrote. She made money by writing reviews, and those are also important. But the major nonfiction prose is included in two books. One is A Room of One's Own, which is well-known, kind of a case-making document for women's authority and independence as writers, and Three Guineas, which is written in the mid-late 1930s in response to the emergent reality of the next war. And speaking of war, obviously World War I impacted her writing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the other historical events that came up? The war was of enormous importance for Wolfe. And I think it's recognizing how intensely she responded to that event has been a way of understanding the importance of Wolfe as a figure. Just a kind of history, not a history so much of Wolfe, but a history of the reception of Wolfe. I think until about 30 years ago, Wolfe was not nearly of the stature she now has. She was, I think, one among many as a novelist of the early century. She would be in there with novelists like H.G. Wells, John Goldsworthy, Arnold Bennett, D.H. Lawrence, E.M. Forster. But I think people read her incorrectly or insufficiently as a novelist who sort of belonged to the protected, restricted world of Bloomsbury, and as such had no real access to or responsiveness to history. The First World War is the historical ground for her fiction. Turning to her more personal life, Mm -hmm. how did that influence her writing? I mean, her personal life is also complex and until relatively recently not wholly known or disclosed. But it is now a matter of ready awareness that in her childhood she was sexually abused by an older half-brother. And that damaged her deeply. Whether that experience accounts for subsequent serious mental illness, which she did suffer from, is a matter of conjecture because the clinical records on this are, if they're not non-existent, but they're certainly insufficient. But she had a series of nervous breakdowns increasing in intensity from 1904, the year of her father's death, culminating in 1915, when she was, as Leonard, her husband, said, literally out of her mind 
for nearly a year. I think it was about nine months. She came out of it and immediately began writing <laughs> and used some writing, I think, to kind of compose herself. She wrote the novel, which most people would say is her least distinctive, titled Night and Day, but it just got her writing. The record of that internal experience on her fiction is at once sort of invisible and pervasive. You can see traces of it in other characters, for example, in Mrs. Dalloway. She represents a character named Septimus Warren Smith, who is a psychic casualty of the First World War. He's suffering from what we call a shell shock. The accounts of the treatment of Septimus by a state medical bureaucracy recreate, to some extent, Wolf's own experiences of institutionalized medicine. But there's also a kind of, how to put it, because these are serious things we're talking about with Milton Illness, but there's a kind of wonderful precariousness in the consciousness of Wolf as a novelist that might be taken back to an understanding of her instability or fragility. What she suffered from in 1915 was largely allayed, practically speaking, for the next 25 years, which are the great years of her productivity. But then in late 1940, early 1941, with the stress of the Second War, and the London Blitz and the imminent invasion of England by Germany, her husband, Leonard Wolfe, was Jewish. And she knew first as an intellectual and secondly as a Jewish person or the other way around that he would certainly be targeted we can't quite tell if she relapsed into the condition of 1915, but her despair of the future was such that she took her own life in early 1941. And who are some of the influences on her work? As a female novelist, she's aware of a certain dearth of tradition. She says somewhere in rooms of one's own, we think back through our mothers. And who are her literary mothers? They're hard to actually pin down, at least by her account. She will speak with a sort of vague appreciation of Jane Austen. When she writes, for example, about the Brontes, Charlotte Bronte, in Room of One's Own, she's actually pretty nasty. Her own complexities somehow get transferred or displaced onto Charlotte Bronte, and Charlotte Bronte has got problems that you wouldn't accuse your mother of. <laughs> uh, so her influences are not direct, simple, linear. They're sort of radiating. She has a very complex and difficult relationship with the phenomenon of James Joyce. He emerges in these years as the major literary figure, the major novelist of the time. Just as one indication of that, Ulysses, Joyce's great novel, published in 1922, set on a single day in the middle of June in Dublin in 1904 with three main characters, Stephen Dedalus, Leopold Bloom, and Molly Bloom. Mrs. Dalloway, published in 1925, set in one day in the middle of June with three main characters, Peter Walsh, Clarissa Dalloway, and Septimus Warren Smith. So there's obviously something going on here. That can be proven by the fact that the manuscript of Ulysses, which was banned and not allowed to be published because it was supposedly obscene and pornographic, had come to Virginia Woolf as editor of the Hogarth Press. Virginia declined the book, but not long afterward began writing Mrs. Dalloway. <laughs> in a sense, there's a sort of formal homage in the structure of Mrs. Dalloway to Ulysses. 
at the same time, she wrote in her diary, and I will remember this for a long time because it's a wonderful example of the intensity of Wolf's literary opinions. She called Ulysses the illiterate, underbred book of a self-taught working man, and we all know how distressing they are, how rude, importunate, and ultimately nauseating. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I think I may have a word or two wrong in there, but the drift of it is so. And it's just that complex, self-defensive relationship with a figure whose equal she thought herself to be. And she may have said, well, you could do that in 700 pages. I can do it in 200. <laughs> and that may have been the dare and challenge in her doing so. Many thanks to Danielle and Vincent for taking the time to meet with us. You can hear a reading selection from Danielle's novel, Sprawl, on our website. We will also be posting a link to the Vita account, which I referenced earlier in my interview with Danielle, for anyone who's interested in seeing the numbers. Thanks again for tuning in, and join me next time for the final episode of Retellings, when I meet with Katherine Davis to discuss the power of stories and the ghost in the machine.